Well, I'd invite your attention again to that passage in Acts chapter 4. It's always something to praise God for when the servants of God are able to turn everything to account in their ministry, no matter what situation they find themselves in, to be able to use it for the furtherance of the cause of Christ. Now, in the passage that we read just a few minutes ago, uh, Peter was summoned before the elders and the rulers and the scribes. We're not told that he was called before the Sanhedrin. This was, if you will, the, uh, the top knots, uh, the, uh, the high priest, his father-in-law, and other members of the high priestly family, the Sadducees, the chief men of the nation. Why was he summoned? To answer for having restored a man who was lame from his mother's womb. And this man was 40 years old, we are told in verse 22. Now, while giving an account of himself for this case of restoring a man, or if I can put it this way, for this case of temporal salvation, this thought came to the mind of Peter. While I'm accounting for the temporal, physical salvation of this man from lameness, I now have a very good opportunity of showing to these people who under any other circumstances wouldn't listen to me the way of salvation of the soul. So the Apostle Peter proceeds from, from the lesser to the greater, from the healing of a man's limbs to the healing of a man's soul. And having informed them already that it was through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that the impotent man had been made whole, he now announces that salvation, the great salvation, must be wrought by the very same means. Verse 12, our text for this morning. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a great word that word salvation is. It includes the cleansing of our consciences from all past guilt, the delivery of our soul from all those propensities to evil, which currently have such a strong hold over us. It takes in, in fact, the, the undoing of all that Adam did. Salvation is the total restoration of man from his fallen condition. And yet it's something more than that. Because God's salvation fixes our standing more securely than it was before we fell. 
It finds us broken in pieces by the sin of our first parents. It finds us defiled, stained, accursed. And what does it do? It first heals our wounds. It removes our diseases. It takes away our curse. It puts our feet upon that solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. And having done that, it lifts us far above all principalities and powers to sit in heavenly places, to be crowned forever with Jesus Christ, the King of heaven. What a wonderful thing salvation is. Some people, when they use the word salvation, understand nothing more by it than deliverance from hell and admittance into heaven. Now, that is not salvation. Those two things are the effects of salvation. We are redeemed from hell because we have been saved beforehand. Our everlasting state is the effect of salvation in this life. Salvation, it's true, includes all that. Because salvation, if I can put it this way, is the mother of it. But nevertheless, it would be wrong for us to imagine that that is all the meaning of the word. Escape from hell and going to heaven. Salvation begins with us as wandering sheep. It follows us through our wanderings. It, it puts us on the shoulders of the shepherd. It carries us into the fold. It calls together the friends and neighbors. It rejoices over us. It preserves us in, in the fold throughout life. And then at last it brings us to heaven, to those, uh, those green pastures beside still waters, as the psalmist David puts it, where we lie down forever in the presence of the chief shepherd. That is salvation. Now our text tells us that there is only one way of salvation. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what I want to do this morning is to first of all take a negative truth taught here. That is that there is no salvation outside of Christ. And then secondly, a positive truth. That is, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. So first of all, then, a negative fact. Nor is there salvation in any other. Christianity would never pass the test for political correctness, would it? God's religion is an intolerant religion. In olden times, the heathen who had different gods... All of them respected the gods of their neighbors. For example, the king of Egypt would acknowledge that the gods of Nineveh were real gods. <coughs> the king of Babylon would acknowledge the gods of the Philistines. 
and at the time of Christ, the Roman Empire not only acknowledged the gods of the nations that they conquered, but even adopted the worship of some of them. But Jehovah, <coughs> the God of Israel, put this as one of his first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And he would not allow the Israelites to pay the slightest possible respect to the gods of any other nation. <coughs> Deuteronomy 12, verse 3, the command is given, and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You see, all other nations were tolerant the one to the other. But the Jews couldn't be so. One part of his religion was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And as a consequence of their belief that there was but one God, and that that one God was Jehovah, they felt it their bounden duty to call all other pretended gods by nicknames, to, to spit upon them, to, to treat them with utter contempt. Now, Christianity, you will notice, is just as intolerant. <coughs> if you were to ask um, a Hindu Brahmin the way of salvation, he will very likely tell you that all persons who follow out their sincere religious convictions will undoubtedly be saved. Doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Sikh or a Buddhist, as long as you sincerely believe uh, what, uh, what your religion tells you, you will get your reward when you die. And the Brahmin turns to the Christian missionary and he says, what's the use of you bringing your Christianity here to disturb us? Our religion is quite capable of carrying us to heaven if we are faithful to it. But now just hear the text. How intolerant is the Christian religion? Nor is there salvation in any other. The Brahmin may admit that there is salvation in 50 religions beside his own. But we admit no such thing. There is no true salvation outside of Christ. Now, what do you suppose is the reason of this intolerance? Someone has said, a thousand errors may live in peace with one another, but Truth is the hammer that breaks them all in pieces. A hundred false religions may live peacefully side by side, but wherever the Christian religion goes as the truth, it's like a firebrand. And everything which is nothing more than wood, hay and stubble will be burned up. All the gods of the heathen, 
And I make no apology for using that term. I realize that we live in a society where just about everything is tolerated except Christianity. And it's considered outrageous to call people who adhere to a different religion heathen. But all the gods of the heathen and all other religions are born of hell. And therefore, being children of the same father, it would seem amiss that, that they should fall out and fight one another. But Christianity is of God. It has a pedigree from on high. And so when it's introduced into the midst of an ungodly generation that denies the truth, it has no peace, no discussion, no treaty with them, because it is truth and cannot be yoked to error. Christianity stands upon its own rights and declares openly that there is no salvation in these erroneous religions, but that in the truth and in the truth alone, is salvation to be found. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, it's because we have the sanction of God. It, it, would, it would be improper in any man who had invented a creed of his own to state that all others must be damned who don't believe it. But since Christianity is revealed from heaven itself, God, who is the author of all truth, has a right to attach to this truth the dreadful condition that those who reject it will perish. He has every right to proclaim that, to proclaim that apart from Christ, no man can be saved. We're not really the intolerant ones because we're just echoing the words of God who has declared that cursed is the man who rejects Christ, seeing that there is no salvation outside of him. Now, there may be some who are shocked by this. There may be someone sitting here thinking to themselves, does he really think that none can be saved apart from Christ? And I reply, I don't just think so. I have it in my text as plain as day. Others may try to divert attention from their own state before God by asking questions like, uh, well, what about those who die in infancy? What about those who, though they've grown to adulthood because of some disability, still have the mental age of a child? What about those who've never heard the gospel? Now, all of those are valid questions, and some of them don't have any easy answer. We can only speculate. 
but let's come home personally to ourselves this morning. None of those scenarios are true of us, are they? So let me ask this question. Have you ever proved by experience the truth of this great negative fact that there is no salvation in any other? I can speak what I do know and testify what I have seen when I declare to you that it is exactly so. It is exactly so. I mean, I once thought there was salvation in good works. And I did all sorts of things in my teens to try to prove to God what a good person I was. But when the Spirit of God started working in my heart, I discovered that my very best actions, my very best deeds were sinful. That my very tears needed to be wept over. And that my very prayers needed God's forgiveness because they were such selfish prayers. I found out that I could not be saved by good works for two very good reasons. First, I hadn't got any. And second, if I had any, they couldn't save me. Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. It's been said, and I think with some justification, no man ever will come to God through the straight and narrow way until he has tried all the other ways. And when he finds himself beaten and foiled and defeated, then it is that, pressed by sore necessity, he takes himself to the one open fountain and there washes himself and is made clean. Perhaps there's someone here who is trying to gain salvation through religious ceremonies. I have a friend who uh, considers himself to be a Christian. He's a good man. Uh, and of course, only God knows the true state of the heart of any man. But I have to say, I have some doubts about whether he is truly saved. You see, he, he loves going to his local Church of England church. Why? Because all the candles and the robes and the kneeling for this and the standing for that makes him feel good. Well, there may be someone who was christened as a baby and you think that that secures your salvation. You take communion. You attend church. And if you knew of any other ceremonies, you would be sure to take part in them. Just to make sure that you're saved. My friend, all these things are irrelevant as far as your salvation is concerned. They cannot help you. They cannot bring you one step closer towards acceptance in the person of Christ. 
It's all well and good doing these things when you are saved. But if you seek salvation in them, they will do you no good whatsoever. No matter what your way of salvation is, and there are thousands of inventions of men whereby he seeks to save himself, there are new sects and cults popping up all the time. But whatever it may be, this verse is the death blow to it. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, this brings me to my second point. The positive fact, which is inferred in my text, namely that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me try now in the time remaining just to deal with anyone here who entertains any doubts about uh, his or her salvation in Jesus Christ and endeavor to show them that they may yet be saved and that in Christ there is salvation for them. Maybe you've been trying for a long time to find the right way and up until now you've missed it. Perhaps like, uh, like Pilgrim in John Bunyan's masterpiece, guilt of sin is like a, a heavy burden on your back. Uh, and perhaps you're afraid to cry out for forgiveness because that would mean dealing with your sins. And you think that your own mouth would condemn you. Satan. He whispers in your ear, it's all over with you. There's no mercy for someone like you. You're condemned. Christ is able to save many, but not you. Your sins are too grievous, and you've left it too late. If that's how you feel, what I have to say to you is this. Come with me to the cross of Christ and you will see there's something which will remove your unbelief. There is a man nailed to a tree. He is without spot or blemish. He committed no crime that he should be crucified between two malefactors. He was pure and without sin. He lived a perfectly holy life. He was full of good works. There was nothing in him that could bring a just accusation from his enemies. They had to employ false witnesses to bring a charge against him. But even then, they couldn't agree with each other. You see him dying there. There has to be merit in the death of a man such as that. Without sin himself, he was dying for the sins of others. As the hymn writer puts it, for sins not his own, he died to atone. Think of the purity of Christ. 
and then see whether there is not salvation in him. Come to him with all your sin, with all your defilement, with all your impurity. And look at his purity. And as you look and as you see that blood flowing from his wounds, remember the precious blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But that's not the greatest thing that should recommend him to you. Remember, the one who died on the cross was no less than the everlasting son of God. That man hanging on the cross is almighty God. Those hands that are nailed to the tree are hands that could shake the whole world. The head that's crowned with thorns has in it the wisdom of the Godhead. The one who hangs upon the cross is the one without whom was not anything made that was made. By him all things consist. Our creator, our preserver, the the God of providence, the God of grace, the one who died for you is God over all, blessed forever. And so I ask you, is there any power to save in such a savior as this? If he were just a man, I would tell you, I wouldn't tell you to trust him. But is, as he is none other than God himself, incarnate in human flesh, I would plead with you to turn to him, to run to him. He is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. Let me also put this to you as a comfort for your faith. That you may believe that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Consider this. It is the Father's anger that every sinner has the most cause to dread. Now, Jesus Christ was punished in the place of every sinner who has repented or ever shall repent. Jesus Christ stood as our substitute and scapegoat. God the Father has accepted Christ in the stead of sinners. Shouldn't that lead you to accept him? If the judge has accepted the sacrifice, surely it's common sense for you to accept it as well. If you have a debt and your creditor writes across the bill, paid in full, isn't that cause for you to rejoice? Are you going to go around wringing your hands and worrying about how you're going to pay your debt? Of course not. If your creditor is satisfied, why shouldn't you be? But you may ask, well, how do you know that God has accepted Christ's atonement? How do you know that? Well, let me just remind you that the reason why we meet on the first day of the week and call it 
the Lord's day is because Christ rose from the dead. Christ was put in the tomb after he died, and there he waited until God should have accepted the atonement. Christ would have been in the tomb to this very day if God had not accepted his atonement for our justification. But he did accept it. And the angel came down and rolled away the stone from the entrance to the tomb, not so that Christ could come out, but so that we could go in and see for ourselves that the tomb was empty. He died and rose again for our justification. Another argument, which may perhaps be applied to someone here, is this. Many have been saved who were just as bad as you are, if not worse. And therefore, there is no doubt that there is salvation. You may feel yourself to be the worst of sinners. But it is absolutely certain that others have been saved who were far worse than you. In fact, the Apostle Paul described himself as the chief of sinners. And he wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they must be true. But, you know, let me put, it, put this to you. Even if none have been saved who are such great sinners as you are, well, so much the more reason why God should save you, <clears throat> so that he may go beyond all that he has ever done before. The Lord always delights in doing wonders, and so... If you were to stand as the chief of sinners ahead of the rest, including Paul, I believe he would delight to save you so that the wonders of his love and grace might be more manifestly shown. I could turn to you, and so could a great many other people in this church I know, <laughs> and tell you that Surely there must be salvation in Christ for you, since we have found salvation in Christ for ourselves. Let me just close with this. That if you do not find salvation in Christ, remember, you will never find it anywhere else. What a dreadful thing it will be for you if you should lose the salvation provided by Christ. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, today, I very much doubt if I'm speaking to the grossest of sinners. But whether we are gross sinners or not, how fearful a thing it will be for us to die without first having found an interest in the Savior. This should make you more eager to go to the mercy seat. Nor is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no other name <clears throat> under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My friends, may these few words have power to draw some to Christ.